Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Hey, if you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 25. Um, Matthew chapter 1 is not the Bible passage that is typically read this time of year. It is not, doesn't have the, the, all the elements that, and the scenery that we think about associated with Christmas. It's uh, really quite interesting to me that Matthew really gives no pen and paper to the events leading up to Joseph and Mary uh, going to Bethlehem. There's no discussion of the no room in the inn. There's uh, no talk of shepherds who watch their flock by night. There's uh, not any kind of discussion about those kinds of things. In fact, there's not even a manger scene in Matthew chapter one. And when you read that, you have to ask the question, why? I mean, wouldn't you wanna tell all that wonderful stuff like Luke does more? But, but here in Matthew chapter one, we need to ask this question, why doesn't Matthew put pen and paper to all the scenery and everything surrounding the Christmas reality? And I think that there is an answer for it. And I think that the answer for it is because he is actually continuing his lineage list talk. Now, last Sunday we were in the first 17 verses, and if you were here last Sunday, it was those riveting 44 names. I mean, it was just, wasn't it riveting to read through all that? You know, three sets of uh, 14 generations, the kind of information that we just take a fast pass and go right by it. And I understand why I generally do. But Matthew is doing something here. I think he's beginning narrative, but also in this he is connecting Christ not just with the human royal lineage, but a divine royal lineage. And here, uh, a couple quotes. Tim Keller says, Matthew 1 might look like a genealogy, and it is, but it is also a resume, a resume of who Jesus is. MacArthur says, "Uh, it is surely no accident that the beginning of Matthew's gospel, at the outset of the New Testament, it is devoted to establishing both the regal humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. So last Sunday we were in the first 17 verses. Now we're just in the last eight verses. And I think, as they have alluded to, this is actually continuing the lineage talk. And it's all about the divine. It's all about the capital D divine with what's going on. Friends, the reason that we celebrate Christmas isn't because it's just a cool time of the year, a gift-giving time of the year, a warm and fuzzy time of the year, but it is because God has come. And that's why we're in it. So I think that's what Matthew is stuck on. And so I don't think the text goes from a genealogy list and all of a sudden full into the narrative. I think it's almost a transitory movement towards the narrative, but continuing the genealogy. Let, let me give you kind of two egghead comments as to why I think that is the case here. First, the grammar. 
the grammar and then the content. The grammar, just real quick, if you look at Genesis chapter, or Matthew chapter one, uh, we see this book of uh, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Last week I talked about the, the two Greek words are biblos, uh, geneseos, uh, uh, genesis. It has this origin idea. And, and, and then when you come to verse 18, it says now the birth of Jesus Christ. In the Greek, it's now the genesis of Jesus I actually think the grammar is not beginning doing a divide here, but the grammar is actually connecting the two. And sometimes, you know, we have those little inserted helpful headings that were not original scripture, but they're helpful to get around, and you see above that the birth of Jesus Christ. I think that causes us to move into the narrative, and instead we're continuing something else. Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus was not just a guy in the royal lineage of David, in the covenant lineage of Abraham. Jesus was divine. And he carries this on here. So the grammar, I think also the content, as we're gonna go through here in just a couple minutes, the content here, you take out the divine activity, I'm telling you, it is just divine character after divine character and divine theme after divine theme. And if you take the divine out of it, there is no story. There is no Christmas. There, let's just go home and have a blast, okay? But the divine is what makes everything happen. Take out the divine and you have a young couple. Put in the divine, and you have something beyond belief. So let's see the divine in here, okay? I've got on your sermon notes page there seven divine elements, and we're going to fill those in, highlighting the divine. Let me grab verse 18. Let me read that. Now, the birth, now the genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from who? From the Holy Spirit, the divine. So what do we have here? We have a divine pregnancy, a divine pregnancy going on. So what are we told? What does Matthew tell us? Assume like we don't know all the story. All that Matthew tells us is this. There's a young couple named Joseph and Mary. We don't know where they're from, we don't know what their history is, we don't know if they met in high school, we don't know any of those kinds of things with it. None of that is put on the table. That is not in Matthew's interest right now. He just puts this couple on the table, Joseph and Mary, and we learn that they are betrothed. Now, we use that all the time nowadays, don't we? Uh, We don't. Uh, uh, but betrothed, uh, English Standard Version, New American Standard Version has that. The NIV has pledged. Uh, the King James Version has espoused. Uh, uh, but they are let's, modern day terms, and I'm not going to go into the history of it all. They're engaged. But engagement in that day was even deeper and more legally bound than engagement of today. There's a legalness to it. They were actually called husband and wife. They were considered married, but not married. So Mary and Joseph, they're betrothed, and the third thing we learn about them is they have a situation on their hands. I mean, they have a unique situation on their hands. She's pregnant, not by her fiancé. That's a bit uncomfortable to talk about, but it's true. She's pregnant, not by her fiance. Before they have physical intimacy, which would happen after their marriage, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, I think it's fair for me to assume kind of that we all know the story in general. 
But here's the problem. In familiarity, we tend to fly by things. So I'd like for us just to pause on this for a little bit here, okay? And let's drill down and let's consider this and think this through here some more. What if we were reading this for the first time? What would be some of the things we're thinking and feeling as we read through this? Let me kind of put out what I think would happen. We see that there's Mary, Mary, whoever she is, that she's the mother of Jesus, the one that was just talked about in the 17 verses, the one in line with David, in line with Abraham, the one that is the Christ, the Messiah, the Messiah that, that would be coming. Uh, Mary is the mother of Jesus, and, 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 and that's an amazing place to be in. She's not just like any other fiance. She's the mother of the Messiah, and we learn that she's betrothed to Joseph. And when I kind of uh, first heard that, we're like, oh, that's so sweet. That's so cool. What a sweet young couple. They're in love. Hearts are floating. And they're sending text messages to each other with the hearts floating down the phone. And uh, it's a wonderful thing. But apparently, they aren't married yet, and she's pregnant. And while that's not unheard of in their day, and that's while that's not unheard of in our day, the facts of a pregnancy at this point in time add some uniquenesses to their situation. It's just a fact. It's just a fact. But wait a second. She's pregnant and they've never had physical intimacy together. How does that happen? Well, I think I know how that happens. It was someone else. But we're told in the text it wasn't someone else was actually told in the text that this was through the work of the... Now let's think about that. If we knew some of the Bible, then that's all we knew. We could think this. Well, Genesis 1 says that God spoke and things came about. Let there be light and there was light. So God could speak and it just be, correct? So that makes sense. Uh, Psalm 139 says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. So it could be that God just breathed this, the Spirit of God breathed this into Mary's womb, but I think we would all agree that's not normal. And it's not. Because this is a divine pregnancy with a capital D, not a small d. This is a divine pregnancy. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, one might think as you're reading those verses, why, are, why did they call Joseph her husband and why does he use the term divorce if they're not actually married yet? As I made mention, the betrothed culture in that day was something quite different than today. They were legally bound together. Now, one has the potential, especially in, in, in our culture today, where it could be thinking, so here's Joseph, another typical guy, just going and abandoning a young woman in need. But that is not what Matthew is saying. In fact, Matthew is saying the very opposite of that. Matthew is telling us that this Joseph dude is a young man, probably 19 to 20 years old, probably 19 to 20 years old, and a man of real character. This is a young man of real character. And we see that in it because she does not want to shame her. So here he is, 
He learns, and it's kind of, we're told in verse 18 about the situation, then you got to understand in the text, it kind of jumps back in the story. Joseph doesn't know that this has been brought about by the work of God. Joseph is understanding that this woman he's about to marry, by the way, back in that day, they didn't have the dating, kind of getting to know each other. Oftentimes, marriages were arranged with it, and, and they probably knew of each other, but they're not going on dates every night together. They don't know each other. In fact, in the whole betrothal period of time, they hardly spend any time together, and if they spend any time together, it's never alone in that day. And so if you're Joseph and you're sitting here and you're, you all of a sudden find out that your fiance's pregnant and you know that you're not involved in it, we got a conundrum. And bless his heart. And the text, Matthew, is clearly having us engaged in trying to understand Joseph and what he's going through. And I just asked, what would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? Even if there was a deep love for this young lady. I think to say that you'd be shocked is appropriate. I think to say that you'd be hurt is an understatement. Maybe really mad and angry. But even in his anger, he doesn't want to shame her, and he doesn't want to take it public. Again, I don't have the time to go into it, but back in that day, when something like this would take place, it was actually, Joseph was legally bound to divorce her. It was, it was the legal law, if that was to take place, that's what he was to do. And normally in that day, it was kind of done where it was taken public, and, and the whole objective was to shame this young lady, it's kind of like, instead of just going, being quiet about it and breaking it off, like nowadays, they'd take it to Facebook. And like everybody know about the junk going on. And what a louse she is. But Joseph, even in his anger, even in his hurt, even in his not understanding even what is going on and that God has divinely done a work in this woman's womb, still does not want to shame her. I just love that fact. And, and I think it, we could all agree, is that not like a man of character that we would want to act like that? Even in the hurt, even in the anger? But then... Something else happens, and know this, the story isn't about how great Joseph is, and the story isn't about how great Mary is. The story is about how great God is. And Joseph is wrestling with this like anyone would, and then all of a sudden the divine steps in with the divine knowledge, divine knowledge for Joseph. Let me read that, verse 20 and 21. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, Behold, it's kind of like, bam, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. By the way, I just have to pause on that for a second because that was the first 17 verses. Legally tied into the line of David. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from whom? 
the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. By the way, they had no ultrasounds back in that day as far as I understand. In fact, even when we had our children, yes, I'm that old, they had no ultrasounds. It was a normal thing. The only way you got an ultrasound is if there was a pregnancy issue. So we got the surprise at birth. And back in that day, he's told she's going to have a boy. I think that's cool. Some of my medical background there. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. So here's this divine knowledge. Joseph, first of all, don't fear. That's cool. Second of all, take Mary as your wife. Why? Because she's pregnant by the divine Holy Spirit. Oh, and what else? And she's going to bear a son. Oh, and by the way, here, I want you to already know the name. You don't have to buy a baby name book. I just want for you to know the name. It's going to be Jesus. Yahweh saves. And then six, it says this. He, this baby, will save his people from their sins. Let me say that again. He will save his people. By the way, that's an interesting statement right there. He will save his people from their sins. We have a divine knowledge about a divine pregnancy that has a divine purpose. A divine purpose. And the divine purpose is that this one that would come, that was talked about in the line of David, the line of Abraham, verses 1 through 17, this one that is coming will save his people from their sins. That's Genesis 3. That's Genesis 3. God gave the promise that one will come. Satan will deal him, will bruise his head, but he will crush Satan. The dragon slayer. It's coming, has come. And here, I'll just say this. It's intriguing to me that the angel does not immediately go into declaring that Jesus, that this baby, would sit on David's throne right away. It doesn't even say anything about that. It doesn't say that he's gonna sit right away, smack dab, on the David's throne and bring global peace. That's not the core issue in the first coming. The core issue in the first coming is to deal with the big problem overall, and that's the sin of people and our sin condition. That's why he came. By the way, it's not about he's going to come and bring everybody's best life now. It's also not about he's going to come and solve poverty or global warming. It's not going to come and he's going to bring affordable health care to everybody or he's going to resolve student loan problems. Listen, friends, we need to keep in line what the real issues are in life. And here, Christ is coming in his first coming to deal with the problem. And the problem is not that he would hurry up and sit on the Davidic throne and rule, but the problem is that he would step in our place to take sin on him and bear it and to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He was coming to save his people from their sins. Loved ones, the issue of life, present and eternal, comes down to the issue of sin. All of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. All, all, not some, not most, all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is the issue. 
And he came to take that head on. And we're told that before he's even born. And Joseph is told that. And he did come in our place to bear the price that we should pay. This baby is unlike any other baby that's ever been born. And by the way, that divine purpose included a divine fulfillment. Verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is from Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? I love the fact that Matthew puts in parentheses kind of as a, both explaining, but I think especially for his readers, an emphasis, which means, kind of like readers in his day, which means, by the way, God with us. What God said he will do, and otherwise, if God doesn't do what he said he would do, then he's not God. And so this divinely given word from the Old Testament in Isaiah, some 700 plus years prior to that, God knows what the timeline of things is. And he knows what he's said, and he knows what he's promised, and he knows what he's declared, and he's got it. Even when it doesn't seem like anything's making sense, he's got it. And he will fulfill every word that he has ever declared. Let me reassure you and I on this. He will fulfill every word, every promise that he has ever declared, God will fulfill. And in those days when you're kind of like, I'm not so sure he's going to do that. I'm not sensing that he is doing that. Know this. He fulfills everything he says. It just may not be quite on my timeline or yours. But he fulfills it. A virgin will bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, God with us, a divine presence, a divine presence. Emmanuel is not an idea that there will be this glowing halo presence of Godness. You know all those pictures with the glowing, you know, the halo things going on? Hey, that's all right, I understand. It kind of helps us remember that when we see the baby in the manger, that this is a little bit different than normal. So I'm okay with the halo thing. It helps us remember and picture the divine. However, it's not this floating feel of God that it just happens to like be hanging around this one. Emmanuel is not the idea that there will be like a divine feeling or aura or this uh, maybe in, uh, in gaming terms, uh, like I'm a gamer, maybe in gaming terms, like there's this, it's not that there's this super bubble around him. That's not what's going on. It's not a feeling of, it's not an aura of, it is. It is God with. It is God present. Not a feeling, not an emotion of, not an aura of. Know this, it is God with us. And friends, I can't tell you how important that is in this day. 
Because straight up with you, a Muslim would speak out against that so strongly. Because in that theology, God would never put his feet on the earth, on this dirty place. But here's the wonderfulness of it. God did. And if you take that out, you take out everything. It is Emmanuel, God with us. Only deity can conquer sin. Only deity can slay it. And deity has. Divine pregnancy, divine knowledge, a divine purpose, a divine fulfillment, a divine present. And as a result of those, a divine obedience and a divine birth. The divine obedience. Verses 24 to 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. That's pretty cool. He did it. What did he do? Well, he took his wife. He took Mary to be his wife. He didn't divorce her, verse 25, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, just as was said. Now, we could stand up and cheer Joseph, and we could God-eyes Mary, but they're not the heroes. They are not the heroes in this. I mean, even with Joseph obeying what God has done, even that Joseph can't take glory for. We talked about that the other week. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to want for his good pleasure. Yes, Joseph is in this place of he is prepared and willing and ready and, and submissive to do what God would have him do. Yes, that is part of it. But even the doing of it is God at work in us. You and I cannot take pats on the back for doing something good. We just can't. God is the one who works in us. And, and, and that's why it's, it's a prayer of willingness. It's a prayer of openness to the Lord. Lord, change me. Please do a work in me. Help me to will and to want and to work for your good work. And Joseph was that kind of guy, and we saw that earlier, I think, with Matthew was telling us that he was not a go-shamer on Facebook. He was a guy of character that wanted to live and be in a way that was a God-honoring young man. And yet in it here, even in his obedience, we know that the divine has been involved in his obedience of it. Don't worship the humans. Worship the God. That's where the hero is. Can we learn from Joseph and Mary? Absolutely. But Matthew's not writing to draw attention or admiration to Joseph or Mary. Not at all. Think in this as you go through, you just see the Holy Spirit's involved and angels involved, fulfilling scripture is involved. Obedience driven by the Lord is involved. This is all about a God and a God at work. And then lastly, a divine birth. <laughs> it's interesting. There's not even said the birth. It's like, it says, and she had given birth to his son. And he called his name Jesus. Matthew's just so not into the scenery of it. He's trying to show something in this. 
This birth is not a birth with a twist. This birth is unlike any birth that has ever happened since the beginning of time. Emmanuel has come. God in the flesh. And so this is a royal birth. Not a human royal birth, but a divine royal birth. We celebrate something that is utterly divine. Utterly divine. Because the divine is all in it. And the fact of the matter is, is there would be no story to tell, no salvation to have, if the divine was not involved. So why rest in it? <laughs> Isaiah 55. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. Come, without money, without price. Come, drink, eat, come. The Lord is calling that. This is not a divine thing that he is far away. This is a divine thing that is come and is with. Uh, the one in Isaiah who is promising the coming is the one who also in Isaiah says, come, come to me, come to me. And so this Christmas, I just ask, Let's come unto the Lord, maybe like we've never come unto him before at Christmas. Celebrate the giving of gifts. Celebrate the time together as family and, or endure it. Take a hold of that. Put the tree up. I hope you have one up. Enjoy the fire. Enjoy the ornaments. Enjoy Rockville Road in the shopping. <laughs> but friends, we don't rest in any of that. But we rest in this. He has come. And the one that has come is the one that invites us to come unto him to lean in that your soul may rest. And I add Matthew eleven twenty eight and 30, come, Jesus says, and you will find rest for your soul. This is the usually right about the time of this season where everybody is wired up, cranked up, and stressed out. But I want you leaving today knowing this. Our souls rest here. They rest in this reality. And if you don't know what it is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, what that means, oh, come and ask. As many as received him, to them he gave right to become children of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Ephesians chapter 2, but your sins upon sins, and then verse 4, but God, rich in mercy, abounding in grace and love, not by works so that no one can boast. We rest our souls in the one that came. And in the hecticness of it all, Let's rest. Lord, thank you for the rest that you provide. Through the work of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. For the hope that you've brought and for all that you've done We don't rest in a dream, in a fairy tale, or in a false story. We rest in the fact of what you have said and what you have done, that you came. That you came in the flesh this first time to deal with the penalty and the problem of sin. And you have made that gift available. And this is the testimony. That God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son is life. He who does not have the son of God. I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Father, I pray if there's someone in this room that's not sure where they're at in relationship with you, that they would ask. That they would come to know what it is to rest their soul in the work of this one that came. And Father, on this Christmas, with all the wonder and all the wonderful things that are going on this time of the year, God, I would just ask that we would all pause and those that know you as their Savior would rest their soul in you. Because this is about a divinely royal birth of one who did a divinely royal work to divinely and royally conquer the problem of the consequences of sin. And I pray that we would royally rest in you.